0: Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation. The book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible. The book of Revelation is about what soon must take place. That's what chapter 1, verse 1 says explicitly. What soon must take place. And what must take place, we ask? Well, the establishment of God's kingdom. And that was particularly foretold by the prophet Daniel. And what we learn in the book of Revelation is that it is Jesus Christ who is going to accomplish that. So this book tells about that epic in four parts. And each one of those parts is set off by a phrase, in the Spirit. It comes up in chapter 1, verse 10, 4, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, verse 10. So one epic of what Christ is going to accomplish given in four parts. And in Act 1, chapters 1 through 3, Christ is ruling the church, exerting his authority over it, scrutinizing its motives and its actions. In Act 2, as chapters 4 through 16, Christ is initiating conflict with the earth in order to win the earth back from usurpers. In Act 3, Christ is going to overthrow religious and commercial, political, and spiritual systems that are allied against him. And in chapter 21 to the end, we see Christ is going to be joined to his people and rule over them in Act 4. So this is the one story, and this story of Revelation is about the champion, Jesus Christ, and that's what we're trying to see as we go through it. So my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider this this morning as we see chapter 11, the measuring of the temple. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today you will again allow us to understand what you have said. And as we understand it, may we get a better glimpse of who you are. Because we realize that if we understand who you are better, we'll understand how we ought to live and act and think what we ought to desire. So, Lord, we ask that you would show us yourself today as you reveal yourself in your word before us. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to my brother this last week about our Thanksgiving plans. He had planned to fly to Florida this spring, but then everything was shut down and his plane flight was canceled. So when we were talking about our Thanksgiving plans... He said, well, they're plans, and if the Lord wills, they'll happen. And that's just how things are in life. I went to a pastor's fellowship this last week, and on the way, one of the pastors wrote and said, my battery is dead in my car, so I can't come this morning. You see, we make plans, and so quickly, we realize they fall apart. But that's not the case with God. Proverbs 19:21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so we see in Revelation 11 that God is able to make plans and fulfill them even hundreds and thousands of years later, and that for his glory. The simple point is God does not need a plan B because he is always able to accomplish plan A. And we fit into that plan by his careful direction in our lives, even as God used the Apostle John to write this book in A.D. 95. Our text is chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and that's in the midst of the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. That is to say, it is still at the same time as the sixth trumpet and the the second woe. So you're in chapter 11, look down at verse 14. And we see the conclusion statement of the second woe. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So from what we have in this break, it would seem, in the action of the sixth seal from chapters 10 through eleven fourteen, 14, we see that there is a refocusing on the drama of Christ's initiating conflict with the world in order to reclaim the earth. In chapter 10, we saw the mighty angel, Stand on the land and sea. And by doing that, he was declaring earth's eviction notice. There will be no more delay. In the time period of the seventh trumpet, God's kingdom will come. And after that, John was given two tasks. The first one we studied last week, which was his recommission to write, to prophesy again. And what was unique about that was the context Its context is that God is graciously choosing to call people to repent even in the darkest of times when people refuse to repent, as was the case at the end of chapter 9. And now we come to chapter 11 and find the second unique task for the Apostle John. Not only is God gracious to give his word, but God is faithful to fulfill his word. And that is demonstrated to us by John's commission to measure the temple, and that's the stuff of the text before us. In verse 1, we'll learn the truth that Christ gives duties to perform. Christ gives duties to perform. John was given a measuring rod. Look at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure. Now, young people, how many of you have ever been told to do something? How many of you enjoyed being told to do something? Perhaps you were told to clean your room, to set the table, or to do the dishes. And all that that shows us is that there are things that our parents expect us to do and tell us to do. And they're the boss. And even so, it is Jesus Christ who has different things for his people to do. Christ assigned John a task. And that task... Involved a measuring rod. Now, a measuring rod was an ancient addition of our modern tape measure. You've probably seen your dad will use one of these before. But this ancient addition to measure things was it was a sturdy plant that had a hollow stock. It was like a piece of bamboo. Some people believe that it was about seven feet tall. Other people believe it was about 10 feet tall. Obviously, it's a, it's a rod that's taller than any of us. But what you would do is place it on the ground, make a mark perhaps, and then you'd move the rod down and, and then you'd make a mark and, and you'd measure the entire width of whatever it is you were measuring. And that was John's task that was given to him by Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't the first time that we find measuring in the Bible. There's, me- there's references to measuring in Ezekiel 40 and in Zechariah 2. You probably remember the prophet Ezekiel saw an angel measure a new temple, and many, many details are given. And then we see later on that Zechariah sees an angel with a measuring line, and he was going to measure the city of Jerusalem. Well, as we look at the text before us, why did Jesus want John to measure something? We can understand why John was given a scroll and why he was told to prophesy. Well, obviously, he was the prophet. He was commissioned. But why is John given the task to measure? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Some people say it's to mark out what God owned. Some people say it's that God was showing his protection upon something or something along the lines of God was showing favor to something. But the text doesn't tell us. And perhaps you've been told to do something and you weren't told why you had to do it. Isn't that frustrating? It particularly is frustrating when you look at the task and you think, this is a useless task. Why am I doing this? I think every child understands this when they're told to take a nap. They look at you and they think, why? I'm not tired. The point is... A child has to learn to obey whether or not he understands the why. And we have to likewise be willing to obey, realizing that God wants us to do something and he knows why he's asking us to do it, even though we may not understand. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming to reclaim the earth from those who would have none of him, he gives duties that need to be performed. And they're not the same as the task that John had here to measure the temple, but they're given to us that we do them so that we'll trust him with the why. Because God is always going to work out everything for his own glory. John's given a measuring rod, and then he's told to measure three things. Look at verse 1. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And it's... The three things that show us where John was to perform this task. So Christ not only gives duties to perform, he gives a place to minister. The first thing John was to do was to measure the temple. But the word here for temple is a more specific part of the temple. It was the sanctuary, the the inner portion. The sanctuary was the inner court of the temple. We all remember the diagrams from Sunday school, I might say. And it was in the sanctuary that we had the holy place, And the most holy place. And inside the holy place, there were three fixtures. The lampstand, the showbread, and the altar of incense. And then in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of that was the mercy seat. And then what would take place in the most holy place? Well, all the way back to the tabernacle, the Lord said to Moses in Leviticus 16, these words, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the altar so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And later with the temple of Solomon, we find in 1 Kings 8, these words, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Young people, do you remember the first song we sang today? We sang, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. You see, it was the temple in the most holy place that was the place of God's unique presence. It's that place, that inner sanctuary, that John was to measure. He's also supposed to measure the altar. And the altar was the place of sacrifice. This is probably the brazen altar outside of the inner sanctuary that would have been located in the courtyard. And on the altar, animals would have been sacrificed and offerings would have been given. So you have a sanctuary, you have an altar, and thirdly, you have worshipers. Now, when John is told to measure the worshipers, he's not told to do what the nurse does at the doctor's office, where you stand up against the wall. Instead, he was supposed to count them. And those worshipers were those who were gathered in the Jerusalem temple. You see, it's not just the priests who were at the temple. There were Jews who would come and worship. We think of the time around the Christmas story, where Jesus was presented in the temple, and Jesus saw worshipers there. We remember the man named Simeon, who by the Holy Spirit was told that he would not die before he saw the Christ child. And he saw the Lord. He was a worshiper in the temple, Luke 2. Another worshiper was Anna, the prophetess of the tribe of Asher. And Luke records her lineage. She was an 84-year-old widow who was always worshiping at the temple. So we have the sanctuary, the altar, and people worshiping there. That's what John was supposed to measure and count. But there's a problem with what we find here. Remember, John wrote this book in A.D. 95. And it was in 70 A.D. that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So if John is supposed to be measuring the the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, where are they? Because it's not in Jerusalem. There's no temple there in A.D. 90. So we need to consider what temple is this? And this is going to get a little bit detailed, but I think you can follow right along. What temples are there in the Bible? The kids know the first temple was the one that was planned by King David and was built by Solomon. It was completed about 957 BC, and it stood until it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587. That was the first temple. Then we know that Israel was in exile, but in 538, BC, King Cyrus sent the people back to their land, and the construction of the second temple began in 536 BC by Zerubbabel. And perhaps this is where some things get fuzzy, but let me remind you they began to work on the temple, they met opposition, and construction on the temple ceased for a time. What God did was raise up Haggai and Zechariah. And he used those prophets to motivate his people to continue rebuilding the temple. And they did, and they finished it in 515. Many years later, in 20 B.C., King Herod began renovating the temple. And that renovation lasted all the way through Jesus' lifetime. And so the the temple was finally completed in 64 A.D. And then you remember what happened in 70 A.D., only six years later. The temples destroyed. The first and second temples. Now, there are other temples that we ought to think of when we think of temples in the Bible. One would be the temple that Ezekiel saw. And that was recorded in chapter 40 and following of his book. It was a temple that was measured, and it was a temple that was much larger than the other temples. And the landscape of Jerusalem was different because it talks about a river that comes out from underneath the temple that washes out the dead sea and makes a, so that it becomes fresh water and after that there's a great fishing industry we see that in chapter 47 there's another temple in the bible which we see in the book of revelation you're in chapter 11 look down at verse 19 it says that the te- god's temple in heaven was opened and we've seen that there is a heavenly temple after which the temples on earth are modeled. There are a couple other references to temples. You remember in John 2 that Jesus referred to his body as a temple. That's a metaphorical reference. In 1 Corinthians 3, we see that the church is the temple. Every believer, the body of every believer is God's temple because every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. So we have all of these temples the temple of Solomon, the temple of Zerubbabel. We have the temple that Ezekiel saw. We have the temple in heaven. We have metaphorical temples like Jesus' body or a believer's body. But none of those temples fit Revelation 11. There's nothing that points us to a historic temple. There's nothing that points us to Ezekiel's temple. There's nothing that points us to the heavenly temple because every time it talks about a heavenly temple, it says so. This drama has been very clear to establish, are we in heaven? Are we on the earth? It is very clear as it tells the story. And furthermore, this can't be the temple in heaven because the outer court of it, as we'll learn in a second, is trampled by the Gentiles and it's located in the city of Jerusalem. It can't be the heavenly temple and it can't be a reference to the church either. So what temple is this? So what I did is I gave you all those temples in the Bible and said, now it's none of those. Now what temple is it? And this is where I'd say, when we read the Bible on a regular basis, when we carefully read God's Word, we're going to see things, and we're going to notice things. And as we read through God's Word regularly, we ought to notice that the Bible has already told us there is going to be a temple. There is a temple that we ought to expect because the Bible plainly says it. When we get to Revelation 11, we should actually be expecting to find this. It's kind of like when a president makes a promise, and he keeps his promise. So he goes into office, he does something, and when it happens, we don't say, well, why did that happen? We know why it happened. He said on the campaign trail that he was going to do it, and now he does it. Even so, God has made promises before So, we shouldn't be surprised when they come to fruition. So, there are three passages that you might want to write in the margin, or circle in the margin, that give us reference to a temple in Jerusalem. Comes up in Revelation 11. The first is Daniel chapter 9, specifically verse 27. This is the portion that talks about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people, that's Israel, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem. Verse twenty says 27 says this, and he, that's the coming prince who's the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant, a peace treaty with many. He'll make a treaty with Israel for one week, for one seven. That's the 70th week of Daniel. And in the middle of the week, he is going to put a stop to sacrifice And grain offering. So the prophecy of Daniel is teaching us that in the 70th week, halfway through that, sacrifices and offerings will stop. And if they are going to stop, that means at some point previous they had to have been resumed. And for sacrifices and offerings to be happening, there needs to be an altar to offer those sacrifices and offerings. We turn forward to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And Jesus refers back to what Daniel says. Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see, Jesus says, and he's making the point you haven't seen this yet, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in, you remember what it says? The holy place. Let the reader understand So Jesus is saying that what Daniel prophesied is still future, and the abomination is going to be in a very specific place, the holy place of a temple, in the sanctuary. And if that is going to be fulfilled, there has to be a sanctuary in place. And turn lastly to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 This is where Paul addresses the Thessalonians concerning the day of the Lord. It's not come yet, as some had mistakenly thought. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, Then watch the end of the phrase, so that he takes his seat in the... Temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So, this passage is showing us that certain things have to come before the day of the Lord. And one of those things is that there'll be a person who exalts himself and takes his place in the temple. So, to summarize those three passages Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and 2 Thessalonians 2, we find that there has to be a temple. There has to be a holy place. There has to be an altar. So when we come to Revelation 11, we shouldn't be surprised that John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. And it goes to show us that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem during the time of the Great Tribulation. And what's unique is that John is not going to give us the size of that temple, but we can be assured that it was there to be measured. It was a physical structure. It will be a physical, measurable structure. Now, some of you are quite well-read on all things prophetic and all things Israel, and you are familiar with places like the Temple Institute, and you realize that there are organizations even now who are preparing for temple worship. They have constructed temple vessels. They have made the, the three key fixtures of the holy place. You can see these online. There's the lampstand, the showbread, and the altar of incense that they've already made because they're, they want the temple to be uh, erected again. And they've made the implements for the temple. Now, I don't know if these implements are going to be made or if they're going to be destroyed in a thousand years from now. A different temple will be raised, and and God will use that temple. God knows that. We don't. But what we can't miss is that God promised in Daniel's day, in Jesus' day, and in Paul's day, a temple. And Jesus is saying here, you're going to see it in Revelation 11. So John was given a task, and the task was to measure three things. Now let's look at the restrictions, finally, that he gave that Christ gave to John. Look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. So Christ gives duties, and he also gives restrictions to observe. He wasn't supposed to measure the outer temple. You say, well, why? Well, this time we're actually told why he was, wasn't supposed to do this. Look at verse 2. For it, the outer, te- outer court, is given over to the nations, or the Gentiles, That is to say, the outer court, that would be controlled by the Gentiles. That was the uncovered area, including the court of the Gentiles. And that is to say, there was a part that the Jews could worship in that was closer to the sanctuary than what the Gentiles could worship in. In New Testament times, the Romans gave the Jews authority to execute any Gentile who went beyond the court of the Gentiles. And then so saying that, we see a contrast between the Gentiles without and the Jewish worshipers within. Verse 2 goes on to say, the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. So Jerusalem is going to be oppressed for 42 months. When you do the math there, 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half is half of seven. This holy city is Jerusalem, the city of God. And it's what Jesus foretold in the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21 says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That's what Zechariah talked about, saying all the nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem. So we see that there's going to be opposition that's localized in space and limited in time. The time is 42 months. That's what we saw in Daniel 9 with half of the seven. And we'll find that many more times in this book. So as we come away from these verses, what I want you to see is the hand of God because Christ is in control of all of this. He is the one who gives John the task to perform. He is the one who tells him the place to perform it. He is the one who restricts him as he performs it. And he is the one who chooses to give some things for a limited time to the unsaved people of the earth. You say, that sounds unnerving. Well, don't worry. Don't worry because Jesus Christ is working out God's plan. In Revelation 10, we saw that the earth's eviction was imminent. And in Revelation 11, we see the focus is not only going to be heaven coming to earth, but it's going to be zeroing in on Jerusalem, the holy city. It's the city chosen by God. So not only do we have this very specific location, we have the countdown of three and a half years beginning before the end. You see, that's what God's plan was all along. And God's plans aren't like our plans. Our plans fall apart. And in a moment, all of our plans can fall apart because something fails us, because there's a pandemic But God is able to make a promise and hundreds and thousands of years later fulfill that promise to the very detail. And that's what we see in this ultimate epic of Christ establishing the kingdom of God on the earth. God is a God we can trust because he keeps his word. And while John may have thought, why am I measuring this temple? God had a reason. And it reminds us of the the fact that God will cross all of his T's, dot all of his I's. He'll do everything he says, and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this, we pray that you'll help us to trust you, to trust you especially when we don't know exactly why you want us to do something, Help us to look at what you've done in your word to show yourself incredibly trustworthy at every point and even to the very end when things get dark and difficult, you will step by step do exactly what you plan to do and may we have great confidence then that everything you're doing today on our behalf to make us more like your son, you are doing with a plan and a purpose and you desire that we would submit to it and be conformed to Christ. So Father, we ask for your help in that regard today. In Jesus' name, amen.